0: Now for our next speaker. For our local national audience here, Tony Connolly is a well-known household name and needs little introduction as Europe editor for RTE, Ireland's public service broadcaster. Tony has been covering EU and European affairs since 2001. Today, Tony is going to take us through his thoughts on the changing Europe and the impacts on Irish tertiary education. Tony Connolly. Thank you very much, and um, really delighted to be given this opportunity to talk here by QQI, so so thanks very much to the organisers. I normally get a minute and a half on the 6 o'clock news to cheer everyone up at home, so today I'm getting 15 minutes, so it's like Christmas. Um, I think it's fair to say that we can safely quote uh, or attribute a a, a quote that is attributable to Lenin that... Sometimes it feels like decades go past and nothing happens. And then weeks go past and decades happen. And that's really the moment that we're in uh, right now. Uh, It's fair to say that the holiday from history that we've been enjoying for the last 30 years has come to an end. And we are living history uh, in a much more acute way than we have done for generations. And I, I think that's no exaggeration. What we're seeing at the moment is the confluence of old and new patterns of history unfolding. Uh, Old, in that we are back to almost like a 19th century format of great power rivalry, um, territorial ambitions, obviously what Russia is doing in Ukraine, what China would probably like to do in Taiwan. Uh, And yet we have very new challenges Uh, nuclear proliferation, global pandemics, biotechnology, uh, and because of those conflicting situations, the old and the new, we are perhaps less equipped to deal with these huge global problems that we face. And this is really going to be the challenge for the the coming generations of educated uh, young people from Ireland uh, and across the world. The challenges that we have, the resurgence of great power rivalry, effectively limit the feats of global cooperation. It's harder to cooperate globally when countries are pulling apart in other directions. And it's acutely much harder because the one country that we have relied on to guide the world in its progression, the United States, is going through its own uh, fragmentation and polarization and it's no longer the uh, example that it once was, and it perhaps can no longer be relied upon the way it was before. Uh, Speaking to officials in Brussels uh, who work in NATO, despite the huge surge in troop uh, levels on Europe's eastern front and eastern flank, uh, there is always that fear that uh, at a moment's notice, the United States would prefer to shift its gaze and posture to Asia Pacific. Um, So all of these things are happening at once. And I must say, it's it's an acutely precarious moment that we're in, Um, also because of the way everything is so interconnected. The people who live around this conference center are intimately affected by decisions made by military planners in Moscow. Uh, Everything is linked, climate, energy prices, refugees, migration, inflation, debt, all of these things that we've been trying to deal with in an individual basis over the past 10 or 15 years have have somehow all now come together. Even Brexit, which I'll be happy to talk about in a moment, is being pressured and shaped by what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, Now, just to talk about where things are at on Ukraine, we know we're, what, seven months now into into the Russian invasion. And what we can say for sure is that it has been a strategically disastrous decision by Vladimir Putin, probably worse than many of us would have predicted when the warnings were happening back in December and January. Um, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine using a peacetime army. He he wouldn't call it a war. It's a special military operation. And that has really shown the limitations of what he has done. The army was not properly trained, not properly equipped. Uh, the strategy was completely wrong and counterproductive. Uh, and his early attempt to capture Kiev was uh, a disaster. Uh, the Russians were beaten back. He then scaled back his ambitions for the war to try and simply capture the Donbas and then, if you like, hold that in another frozen conflict and then try and extract uh, concessions from the West, uh, perhaps later on. Uh, But even that he has failed to do. And as we know from the beginning of September, the Ukrainian forces have carried out uh, an astonishing counteroffensive to recapture up to 6,000 square kilometers of occupied territory around uh, Kharkiv. And they're doing the same now, but with a lot more difficulty uh, in the south around Kherson. Um, How is Russia responding to this? Well, we've seen the response in in recent days. Uh, Perhaps the main trigger was the uh, attack on the Kirsh Bridge linking Russia with Crimea uh, the weekend before last. And the retaliation has been unspeakably vindictive and cold-hearted by the regime in Moscow. They have simply unleashed um, scores, if not hundreds, of uh, missiles and rockets, and now Iranian drones uh, on civilian infrastructure uh, and and residential areas as well. Um, This is both vindictive and also an attempt to break the spirit of the Ukrainian people Um, But we know for pretty much certain that that is not going to work. The invasion of Ukraine has emboldened the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people to a degree that nobody could perhaps have anticipated. It has galvanized and strengthened Ukraine's identity, its national spirit. And with every death in Ukraine, that spirit seems to be strengthened. So what we're left with is a scenario where Vladimir Putin has cornered himself and cornered the Russian government, and his only strategic toolbox at the moment appears to be escalation. Now, that can be quite terrifying for people because it has uh, let the the genie of a nuclear response uh, out of the bottle, and it's very hard to put that back in, certainly in terms of the rhetoric that we're seeing uh, at the moment. it's, it's hard to see how this is going to end, uh, but it, it seems that it can't end in a military victory by Russia. Uh, it's been said many times that f- for uh, Russia to win, there, there may be peace, but for Ukraine to surrender, there may be no more Ukraine. Um, and I think everyone knows that that is the the dynamic and the driving force behind Ukraine's resistance. The recent counteroffensive as well has removed the argument from the Western discourse that uh, Ukraine should perhaps sue for peace, settle for some kind of compromise that can let both sides claim victory and end the terrible energy crisis that we're in and start to bring the world back from the brink Uh, But I I think the fact that Ukraine has done so well in terms of its territorial achievements uh, means that that option is simply not on the table. And, of course, at this stage, no one really trusts the Russian government to be a good-faith partner uh, in any settlement. Um, We can be reminded, if you like, of what happened in Vietnam uh, 40, uh, 50 years ago, The the strategy of the the Johnson administration was to to bomb the North Vietnamese into submission, um, and it didn't work. And then you had this bizarre blend of heavy bombing with uh, lavish inducements uh, to the North Vietnamese to come to the table and find some kind of negotiated solution. Something similar to that is happening uh, at the moment. The nuclear saber rattling uh, that the Kremlin is engaged in, combined with a very heavy, a a much heavier, uh, strategic bombing effort across Ukraine to hit civilian targets to try and grind Ukrainian morale and Western morale down, uh, combined with the threat, of course, that we're all familiar with, of Uh, energy crisis, uh, huge energy bills coming into the winter, the hope that populist politics in Europe will force a change of heart in European sanction uh, decision-making. But we know that that hasn't worked so far, and the evidence is there that it's not really going to work uh, in the coming months. Um, All of this has forced Europe uh, to make huge changes to policy, Changes that normally take months, if not years, to uh, enact uh, in terms of sanctions against Russia, uh, in terms of completely re-engineering the energy market um, in a way that would have been unthinkable some months ago. It's also changed the way Europe thinks about enlargement. Um, We are now seeing uh, a huge number of countries being ushered in to the Uh, waiting room, if you like. Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova are all being given perspectives on membership. Uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina last week just got uh, its candidate status. Uh, So it has forced Europe to think in much more dramatic and radical ways than it has been accustomed to in the past. Um, So closer to home, of course, we have the Brexit negotiations Uh, Just to recap, when the referendum happened in 2016, nobody anticipated that Ireland would be at the centre of the withdrawal treaty discussions, uh, and no one would have anticipated that uh, the issue of the Irish border would still be with us uh, six years later. Um, Where we are at the moment is that the negotiations on trying to ease the burden of the Northern Ireland Protocol have resumed after being in suspense, in suspense or suspension f- since the 11th of February. Um, we are looking at ways to make customs and agri food checks a lot less onerous um, and to deal with other more, much more technical and difficult issues uh, around VAT, uh, competition rules, uh, governance, or what we, we refer to when we talk about the role of the European Court of Justice. Now, all of this has been contingent on a stable and reliable situation in UK politics, um, and we can safely say that, that that just hasn't been happening at the moment. Um, over the past six years, the I suppose the contradictions of Brexit and the inability of the Conservative Party in particular to really get to grips with what Brexit would mean, what it could potentially mean, and what it doesn't mean, um, has pushed the party into ever deeper spasms of conflict and fantasy. And again, we're seeing this being played out today. Uh, We had David Cameron's resignation, Theresa May's resignation, Boris Johnson has gone, and now Liz Truss is hanging by a thread, and all of these paroxysms of political chaos how can be traced back to the decision to leave the European Union. Um, it's hard to say how much energy and political capital the EU will invest now in these talks process if they think that Liz Truss is going to be gone within a week or two. But I think I su- the, the, the sobriety which seems to have taken hold of the Conservative Party in the last number of days would suggest that... The new government is less inclined to push for a hardline enactment of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill uh, as a way to extract uh, very radical uh, concessions from the European Union. Um, the big, I suppose, unknown of all this is, is what's going to happen with the Northern Ireland institutions. The, will the DUP find a way to make some kind of staged return to Stormont? Uh, If they see that some of their concerns are being addressed in the talks, we'll have to see how that all pans out. Um, One of the weird, uh, or one of the many weird consequences of Brexit was that uh, there were some 60 British officials in the European institutions who suddenly discovered that they could get Irish passports, and they were given Irish passports, and that meant that they could then be considered Irish citizens within the EU com- institutions and could be uh, upwardly mobile. Um, what, what happened with Brexit is they weren't going to fire British officials working in the institutions, but they were going to be limited as to their upward mobility. So 60 of them got Irish passports and are now considered Irish citizens and can therefore move up, move up the ranks. And this has shown a, a, an uncomfortable light on the problem of not enough Irish graduates Getting jobs in EU institutions, uh, according to the way the divvy up of uh, staff at EU level is organised, it's on a proportional basis, depending on the um, the number of or the uh, population size, um, and according to that key, uh, there should be around 70 Irish people entering the EU institutions every year at entry level. Uh, And it's only around 28 or 30. Uh, A lot of the problem there is because uh, we suffer in Ireland from uh, language skills. Because of the big tech uh, temptations, Uh, a lot of young graduates will get work uh, in the Googles or the Facebooks or, or whatever in Dublin and are less inclined to go to Brussels, where if you want to move up the ranks in the institutions, you have to do the concours. It's a very challenging examination. It takes about 14 months uh, to do it. Uh, And as a result, we're not getting people into the institutions the way we should, according to our population size. Um, And this is causing a problem for the government because there is something like 30% Uh, of Irish staff in the institutions are due to retire in the next uh, five or six years. They're they're over 58. Um, And that's going to cause a bit of a demographic cliff edge for Irish representation in EU institutions. And and that's going to be a problem. Uh, It's very important for every member state to have their own people working in the institutions. Now, the Irish government have been Uh, going to great lengths to try and encourage more people uh, to get more language skills, uh, to get into the institutions. There's a a much broader secondment program now from the civil service into the institutions as well. Um, But it it, it is a a challenge. Uh, One interesting uh, fact as well is that because there are no new British uh, people entering the interpretation and translation service in Brussels, um, Irish interpreters and, trans- and translators are being lobbied heavily by the institutions to, to go and work in Brussels um, because they are native English speakers. So again, it's a challenge to get those people to develop the skills that they have. I mean, just uh, just my, from my own personal experience, um, I've I've two kids, three and six. They go to a Montessori school around the corner, and there are now uh, about six Irish kids in there. Um, one. Uh, parent couple that, that we know, uh, a guy whose parents worked in the institutions, they're Irish, he's now got kids, they're in the, they're in the school. Another couple, uh, a woman whose wife has come over to, to teach, or t- sorry, to be an Irish language translator uh, in the institutions, uh, and their kids are now at, at the school. Um, this possibly constitutes a gang uh, for my kids to join, which is uh, great news. Um, But it is an indication of the changing complexion of Irish people coming to work in Brussels. Um, What I can just conclude by saying is that I think the the people who are graduating uh, at this moment are entering a world which is changing rapidly and is probably more precarious and uncertain than at any time since the Second World War, um, simply because of the power dynamics that are at work at large uh, in the world, and they're acutely being felt uh, in Europe. Um, William McCaskill, who's the Oxford University philosopher, um, points out that if human beings survive as long as the average mammal species, then for every person alive today, there'll be a thousand people alive in the future. So on the scale of a typical human life, humanity today is barely an infant struggling to walk. The average mammal species lasts a million years, so we have 700,000 years ahead of us if all goes well. So let's take those steps, and I wish all the graduates coming forth in the coming months and years the best of luck because they'll need it. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for those really interesting perspectives, Tony Connolly.